We distracted you for the last hour with news coming out of the construction industry locally. And right now, from across the pond, our friend Yael Osowski with the Consumer Choice Center is back with us. Yael, thanks as always for holding the line. And good morning to you, sir. Good afternoon for you out in Vienna. Yeah, how you doing, Joe? Hopefully I can be uh, a little bit of a distraction, too. So thanks so much for having me on. And great uh, for uh, you joining us, as you always do on Fridays. Uh, you know, I saw your media post, uh, social media post the other day, and you seem to be a, a, a little bit, uh, you know, a tiffed at uh, the fact that come uh, later on this year when uh, your lovely wife uh, delivers your second child uh, that you may or may not be able to be there due to the COVID restrictions. And if you do go, there are all sorts of other, you know, hurdles and hoops that you have to jump through just to be alongside your wife and your new child. How frustrating is that uh, with the understanding that you're going to have to go through all these different things uh, just to be able to see your own kid and your lovely wife uh, on one of the most special days uh, that your family could ever experience? Yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're a year and a half into this now. Uh, we've dealt with wave after wave after wave. We've received the bountiful greatness of vaccines from the mountaintop that are the answer to all of these issues and problems. And yet we still have restrictions. And uh, specifically in my case, this has to do with uh, the birth of my new daughter to come in about two months. And the issue that essentially I'm allowed to be there at the birth, that's all fine. That's all well and good. Uh, but essentially in the next few days, uh, when we're supposed to be at the hospital, getting used to the newborn, learning how to put on the diaper, learning how to feed her, all of that, I'm only allowed to stay one hour per day. And that's knowing that I'm... Uh, doubly vaxxed now, fully, have been for a long time. You need to take a daily test to show that you're negative, but you still are not able to stay longer than one hour, and it's only within a particular window of time. So it's only going to be between, you know, the, I believe it's the hours of three and four uh, that we'd be allowed to be there. And it's something like that, after all of this time, really is just, it's so galling. It's so galling because we've gone through all the restrictions. We've gone through all the worst parts of this. I did everything that, you know, basically capitalism has given us these vaccines. I did that. I've been able to fly and travel and do many things. Uh, but somehow we have no procedures set up in these hospitals that are not close to COVID wards at all. We still have these restrictions. At this point, it's not about safety anymore. It's not about keeping people safe because who is really being kept safe here? Is it my family? No. Is it me? No. So I think this really has a lot more to do with control and power and policy. Unfortunately, I hope there would be better guidance. I know that in North Carolina, I've been looking at some of the rules and comparing, you know, looking at uh, the different centers across various cities and Wake Forest and Charlotte and Raleigh. And there it's still a bit limited. You can only have one family member, uh, essentially still need to be vaxxed, all this kind of stuff. But really, Joe, it's it's really it's really frustrating because uh, this is you know supposed to be a magical time in our lives, yet to know that we'll have to be subject to the, all these restrictions and rules, even though we will not impact anybody. And scientifically, I'm not uh, the super spreader that they claim that I am. You know, how do we get to a point here, Yael, where uh, we have uh, exchanged uh, you know uh, 
a way of life uh, that we once knew, pretty uh, you know, for our young people. Uh, you and I are big boys. Uh, you know, we're almost 40 years old. Uh, you know, we're adults. Uh, we're supposed to be able to handle these sorts of things when life throws us a curveball, even though you know, sometimes we handle it a bit differently and wrongly and uh, you know, then have to you know, come back uh, home or elsewhere and, and throw an apology out because you, you, know, you, you may have uh, gone off the course just uh, a little bit because of all this different pressure, anxiety, stress, depression that has come alongside the last uh, two years. You know, how is it any good for us to be teaching our kids uh, you know, these sorts of ways of life uh, that uh, we should be fearful of the air we breathe or you know, the friends that we come in contact? Uh, how does that do any of us any good? I was actually, I talked about this uh, the other day. There was a, a podcast where they asked me you know, about different things that we do at Consumer Choice Center. And it's, what about risk? You know, what happened to risk? What happened to balancing risk to actually looking at it and to comparing and saying, is it worth it to do this, knowing what the risks are? And it's something that we teach our kids. I mean, you know that, Joe. It's something that we teach our kids. They need to have some ability to think on their own and to do their own things. There's always a risk that they'll fall and they'll scrape their knee, but it's better to allow them to make their own decisions and to have that autonomy than to just be a helicopter parent all day long. Somehow it seems with public policy, with pandemic policy, we've uh, taken all of that power, all of that knowledge and thrown it by the wayside because we think that uh, people who might be in public institutions or in the government or in the World Health Organization are somehow much more intelligent, smarter, and much more reliable uh, than parents over their kids or even us as individuals over ourselves. That's not to question scientific institutions. We have all the data. We have all the knowledge. We have the vaccines. It's there. It's out there. If at this point we need to continue having these restrictions, we really have to ask what the end game is. And I think we're seeing parts of that end game play out in Australia and New Zealand. Australia basically forcing people as well in South Australia, one of the states there, to download an app to prove that you're not leaving your house once per day. You know, they're going to have all of these technological tools that really are so great and give us so much. They're going to start turning those on us as well, saying that we need to check in. Then we're going to have more of these restrictions, another lockdown. We just can't stand for it anymore. And I, I know that uh, we've been honking this horn for a long time, but at some point we just have to let people live their lives and get back to it because we just sincerely don't have time for this. I don't have the bandwidth. I don't have the time. I don't have the space. And, uh, you know, I'm someone who can work from home. I'm someone who can be a lot more flexible. And yet we are actually seeing so many harmful impacts, particularly on young people, particularly on those who are socially isolated. I mean, we're just well past that time. I hope we don't follow the Australia playbook, um, but really when we look at the power centers in California and New York, where a lot of these rules are coming from now, I'm not sure anymore. Yeah, yeah, you look at this, uh, you know, past two years uh, with the COVID BS, uh, you look at what we see playing out now with uh, the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, to me, I'm not sure how there are still millions of people in our nation who want to give those in charge more power, more of our freedoms, uh, more of our opportunities. And we have a very unique ability to do something only few people in the world have opportunities to do. And we seem, at least some of us, seem hell-bent and okay with handing that over to the people in charge that have botched the COVID response, that have botched the withdrawal in Afghanistan, that have botched you know, the way in which we consume health care, that have botched the southern border. The list goes on and on and on. How and why would anyone in the right mind want to give these people more power?
Yeah, I think the the most important impulse that we need to have after all of this is we need to keep a healthy skepticism of all centralized power. And that means that we do have to advocate for decentralization, for making our own decisions. And we've seen that with some of the states, but really they were pretty much in unison throughout the course of the pandemic. Maybe there were a few rules that were different in South Dakota versus Florida versus North Carolina. Uh, but overall, people just have to realize, look, there are all the tools at your disposal to live your own life and to kind of decentralize from the power centers. We don't always have to think about what's emanating from D.C. or what's emanating from Raleigh. There's going to be a lot of attempts to restrict and ban products that you use or things in your life that you love. Uh, at some point, we're just going to start turning to the entrepreneurs who are actually responding to those things. And that's why I think there is a lot more room to be hopeful I think we don't have to, you know, throw it all down and say the gauntlet is passed, uh, the pendulum has done swung and we're done. I don't think so. I think there's still a lot of energy out there. There's definitely a lot of skepticism that's growing and people are becoming skeptical for different reasons. You know, with everything in Afghanistan, people are realizing that essentially no one knows exactly how to do any of this stuff. People are kind of winging it. Nothing seems to work anymore. The institutions that we thought were, uh, you know, holier than thou make mistakes you know, they make terrible decisions. They're not good at bureaucracy. They're not good at administration. I, I know that the common adage, uh, if you happen to know something about a particular topic and you see a journalist write about it, you say, hey, that's not right at all. Imagine that with every other topic in the world. <laughs> we kind of realize that all this kind of knowledge that they say that people have that we ascribe to institutions or to governments I mean, really, we just have to empower ourselves. So I think there is, you know, slowly people are coming to that realization. Uh, people are understanding the need to have some kind of innovation and a push for that because we can't rely on it when it comes to just like the, the public system and going through the government and voting. Uh, there are better ways that we can empower ourselves in our lives right now. Out on the left coast of the United States, EIL, they're in the middle of, in California, in the middle of a recall election of their governor, Gavin Newsom. And apparently, well, a popular conservative radio talk show host who, well, used to appear daily on our station, Larry Elder, you know, maybe the guy that clips Gavin Newsom's wings. Uh, why should we be paying attention to that recall election in California all the way back here on the East Coast? Uh, you know, what does uh, this uh, and how does this play out? And if it does shake out for Mr. Elder or someone else, uh, you know, how does that impact the rest of the nation? Well, if Larry Elder is doing that well, Joe, I think there, there's something good to say for us in the radio industry. Huh? <laughs> but uh, I would say, you know, it's, it's interesting to see in this kind of recall mechanism doesn't exist in every state. It's something that is very particular to California. But what we saw with the last recall election, if we remember, is we had the election of a Republican, and that was happened to be um, Austrian Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, but we could have this, you know, turn around just as quickly and have an, a Republican leading California in 2021, which would be insane. And if we look at this, that will only be because of not just the restrictions that we talked about with COVID, not just all of the, the violence that happened in the last year and the inability of public officials to address that specifically. I think there is that groundswell, and that will likely be what would be responsible for getting Gavin Newsom out. The polls are still very close. It's always about 50, 49, 48. It's staying like that. We have um, another two weeks before this recall election. Uh, but if in a majority state of Democrats, that is California, if we can have a recall of a governor 
solely based on issues with his policy, whether it be with COVID or whether it be with energy, where he definitely has been failing, whether it has to do with hypocrisy, him hanging out at the French Laundry restaurant while every other business has to be closed. That means that more and more people are growing very skeptical of many of the measures that governors have taken. And it means that we could have similar movements in some of the other states. And again, this is not a partisan uh, sort of movement. It would be something that is technically against power and centralized power and more of these COVID restrictions that really are not saving any lives. They're making our lives much tougher. We don't have to explain that uh, ad nauseum because everyone knows it's true at this point. We have too many scientific studies to cite, but it shows that if things can change in California, that means they can change in almost any other state as well. So that, that actually should give us a little bit of optimism. Well, as Larry says, we got a country to save. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's uh, trying to do so and make a, a, a monumental move <laughs> in a state that we all thought was uh, left for dead, uh, you know, as tens of thousands of people uh, take their wealth uh, from uh, uh, such a beautiful state and one of the largest economies around the world individually in, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Golden State alone, uh, and many people bringing their and pulling their wealth out of there over the last uh, decade because of these ridiculous policies. Uh, now couple that with COVID, and uh, you know all of the other things Yael just mentioned, and that would be something, huh? If uh, we have a governor, Larry Elder, uh, from uh, the state of California, uh, Yael. Uh, obviously, as we wrap up this morning, uh, the big elephant in the room and all the headlines surrounding uh, you know the situation in Afghanistan and uh, you as I keeping and, and following the news geographically closer to the war-torn country than we are. Uh, but with that said, one, how about a, a European sort of perspective on the situation in the Middle East? And then we'll get into this other story that kind of surfaced as we were learning about the 12, uh, 13 service members who were killed yesterday in that attack, along with uh, dozens of others. We'll get into that other story in just a moment, but just give us a perspective that we may not see or hear about here in the United States as far as the way Europe sees the situation play out in Afghanistan. Yeah, European leaders don't really know what to do. Uh, they're, they're a bit weak because uh, you have do have Emmanuel Macron, who's the president of France. You know, he's come out and say it's a travesty that it was done this way. Uh, the U.S. should have never have retreated. And if you just look at the total number of commitments that many of these countries had with NATO, I mean, it was next to nothing. So I know they like to complain and they like to say the U.S. is is told, uh, terribly wrong with this policy, but they had almost no skin in the game. Um, there is a country like Lithuania, very, very small population, something like two million people. They were able to get all of their people, all of the translators they worked with, all of their local assets. They got them all out within days, quickly. They did it fast. And I see no reason why you know a country like the United States can't do that. There's definitely a lot of bureaucracy at play, but for the Europeans, there's, you know, the official response from the public officials. They're trying to save face. They're trying to say they believe in, you know, democracy and human rights, and this was all done uh, terribly. But, you know, there's no way that any European countries, uh, apart from Lithuania, I guess, would be able to pull this off. So I think it's a bit rich of criticism. Uh, to see that coming from the European leaders. With that said, uh, you know, being reintroduced to, to the savage way of terrorist organizations such as the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, uh, ISIS, uh, who, whoever you want to speak of, uh, you know, in that region around the world or other organizations that want to, uh, you know, uh, push their evil uh, on, you know, innocent people. Uh, Eye-opening, uh, you know, uh, commentary the other day from one of my friends who, who said, you know, the Taliban, they don't have a problem of, uh, you know, digging a ditch, uh, throwing a teenage girl there, stoning her to death uh, because she's unwilling to, you know, uh, become the fourth wife of a 65-year-old man. I don't know if he was over-exaggerating or if he was telling the hard truth of what, the, you know, the mindset of uh, these people are. 
And to think that the U.S. handed over an air base that could have provided a strategic uh, you know, exit for many of these thousands of people that are stuck in this city of four million uh, following this explosion, along with the fact that now Politico reporting that uh, the U.S. may have given the Taliban a list of names of U.S. citizens, green card holders, and Afghan allies to grant them you know, into the perimeter towards the airport? I mean, are we not sitting ducks, and do we not call this just what it is, a hit list uh, of American people and others uh, who have lent themselves to the cause for the last 20 years? Well, Joe, if there's always one thing to remember, it's that lists are for fascists. Because lists are made up of enemies to target. And when the U.S. government apparently handed over this list, it put targets on all of those people's backs. I, th I can't believe this type of incompetence. I think that's really offensive. I think if you really truly believe that some of the political or military leaders or whomever made this decision uh, should still stay there, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. And, you know, to see how this is evolving, I mean, to be clear, after a couple of years being in Afghanistan, there was likely an easy way that we could have gotten out, had a small footprint, done all of the rest. I mean, we're kind of armchair quarterbacking. Uh, but in a way, the way that it was done, it just comes down to administration. And that's what you do when you are a president or you're the head of an institution. You organize the administration. And this obviously was not done well at all. And if you've got people from the left and right criticizing you and the Europeans doing it in their own little weak way, yeah, something didn't work out well. And I think it's, it's unfortunate, uh, particularly for people who have been there, have worked there. Uh, there are a couple of Afghan refugees that I've met in the course of my life who are, are really sad at seeing what their country is becoming. And it's because we have no direction. We have no idea exactly what we want to be doing there. No one is able to articulate it. And even those who criticize staying there, what is the our, you know vision? What is the way that we're going to continue to interact with Afghanistan? Because most people who are in Afghanistan in the rural parts, they don't know what nation states are. They don't believe in the national government that's in Kabul. I mean, they believe in their family, they believe in their land, and whatever they have around them. So it's, it's very difficult to try to impose some type of model that we can on them. Uh, but overall, not a good situation. I hope we can still stand up for uh, liberal de democratic values, uh, no matter what. Uh, but something like this, when you see that much incompetence at the administrative level, if this is democracy that we're trying to sell them and sell around the world, we're not really doing a very good job of it. Yael Lasowski with the Consumer Choice Center, the global grassroots movement for consumer choice at consumerchoicecenter.org. He, alongside his tag team partner, David Clement, will be back on the airwaves tomorrow at 10 a.m. right here on the Big Talker FM, their latest edition of the Consumer Choice radio show. Yael, have a great weekend, and I look forward to next week's conversation. Yes, sir. Talk to you then, Joe. Our good friend Yael Osowski uh, across the pond uh, in Vienna with us here this morning on the Big Talker FM.